You know, that music kind of matches the theme of tonight's show, which is like an LSD trip. No, by the way, I am not on LSD, nor do I plan to be. But that is one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. It's 7 o'clock on the East Coast, 10 a.m. on the... uh, no, it's seven on the. Maybe I am on LSD. <laughs> it's seven a.m. on the West Coast, ten a.m. on the East Coast of America. Good morning, America, wherever you may be. Don't ask me about Central and Mountain Time. It's three o'clock in the afternoon in London, England. It's seven thirty in Mumbai, India. Eleven p.m. in Kyoto, Japan, and in Malaysia. I don't know what the hell time it is. I'm Jay Sheldon, the guy without the pants. Oh, man. (laughs) Great way to open the show. Mark this one, by the way. Mark this one, Fred. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's uh, it's Saturday night, so who cares, right? You decided to spend a little under an hour with me hanging out, telling stories. Talking about uh, stupid things, stupid people, stupid news, and some fun and encouraging stuff, too. So we'll have all that coming up, (laughs) no matter what. And, of course, at the end of the show, we'll get to our new book. It's a very old book, but it's new to us, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. We read classic books on this show in the last half of the show, so you can tune in for the first part, or you can tune in about 10.30 every uh, Saturday, Monday, and Wednesday, and catch the book only if you want to. If you're really into the classic book reading, you can head over to our Patreon page, patreon slash dot com slash like Jay Sheldon, something like that. It's on our Linktree account. Uh, and you, you want to be a supporter, you can help us out there. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, you get special access at certain tier levels on Patreon. So check that out. We are live on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and Rumble.com. Rumble.com is the place to watch our show. It is also a great place because, frankly, if you watch more, I get more hits, I get more advertisers, and I make a little money, which, you know, helps to defray the cost of doing the show, which, by the way, ain't cheap, okay? I'm okay, but it ain't. It costs money, all right? Thank you for helping. If you enjoy the show, thank you. You know, one of the ways you can help, even without spending a dime of your own cash, is just to hit the subscribe or the like button. And by the way, that's also to our podcast folks. You can find us on all your platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, uh, no matter where, you, you'll find us. Look for I'm Not Wearing Pants or Jay Sheldon. Look for this logo. That's our show. Just click follow or subscribe and you're done. All right, it's time to get you updated on our little furry friend. Miko Update. Mickey, 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 Miko update. She's great. She's fine. And she feels exactly like I felt for the last three or four days. Me- Just like this. <laughs> I swear. The heat is getting to everybody, myself included. I think my brains are scrambled tonight. This is Miko earlier today, and it was just like one of those... It's how everybody feels. It's oppressive. We did get a thunderstorm come through Subang Jaya tonight, so it cooled things off. Right now, outside, not too bad, actually. But uh, during the day, forget it. Uh, This is exactly how Miko and I also look. 
except I try not to sleep on the floor if I can. So she's doing great, though, uh, and thanks for asking. Everybody wants to know about Miko. Nobody wants to know about me. It's okay. I'm used to it. <laughs> I'm used to it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, she is doing really good. All right. Uh, let's see what else we got happening tonight. Oh, we got a lot of stuff. Oh, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, we're going to move on over here to our our first topic. And uh, seriously, you, I wasn't kidding when I said LSD. You know, let me give you a little background before we get to this story. Um, I'm 60 some odd years old. I don't even remember anymore. I was born in 1958. So I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So drugs, everything from pot, which really isn't a drug, to, uh, you know, all the hard LSD, acid, uh, cocaine, methamphetamines, all that crap. I, I did not do any of it, but I lived through it. I lived through friends doing it. I lost friends from doing it, um, both because they died and because they just simply, you know, lost it. And really, loss of the friendship wasn't that big of a deal. I was grateful. But uh, I, I will tell you, and I've told you before, I have smoked pot in the past. Uh, I don't think pot is uh, A, harmful, B, should be against the law in any manner or form, and uh, it should be available anywhere and everywhere to anybody who wants it. I think it's a totally legit uh, weed and, and uh, a plant that not only has it been medically shown to do a lot of good, but uh, these idiot countries who, in some cases, are still hanging people for possession of something as simple and inane as marijuana, which is just stupid, okay? Opinion out of the way. Having said that, that is the only thing I have ever tried in the scale of, and that is like, as far as I'm concerned, shouldn't be on the scale. But uh I will be totally honest with you. I've told people this before privately in, in discussions. It wasn't some secret. I would love to try cocaine. Yeah, Al Aldwin says he's pretty libertarian with it. I'm the same. You want to do it, do it. I think you're stupid, but go ahead, do it. Not, not when it comes to pot, weed, marijuana, but all the other drugs, to me, no thank you. But let me, let me continue my thought here. I would love to try cocaine. I never would, I never have, I never will. But it kills me that I want to know what that feeling is that is so addictive for people. I just, I want to experience it. I wouldn't, I will not. I do have a bit of an addictive personality, so frankly, it scares the hell out of me that if I tried it, I'd like it. So this boy ain't getting anywhere near that stuff. I, re I really don't want to. But what I want to is to have that experience of knowing what it feels like. Now, one other thing that, again, to me is not, it's like, as far as I'm concerned, it's like marijuana, is uh, ayahuasca. Um, I not only would love to try ayahuasca, I would try that. That, indeed, I would try. And fly to the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest. 
go in front of some high priest, drink the tea, have that experience. I would do that in a heartbeat. I would love it's a it's DMT, if I'm not mistaken, that is the drug in ayahuasca that you know. If watch the Joe Rogan pod, uh, podcast if you or listen to it if, if you want a lot of inside information. He's done it, as far as I know, he's done it several times. But uh, I, I would try it, and I would love the opportunity. I'll probably never get it. I'm too old for that. But I would absolutely kill to know and to have that experience. So, yeah. Anyway, LSD was the big thing when I was a kid growing up. It was the big hippie drug. And so, yeah, I was back in the hippie days. You know, I was a 10-year-old, so what did I know? And I did not do any of this stuff. But uh, acid or LSD... Uh, which is, I'm trying to do this from memory, lysergic acid diethamide. Did I get that right? I think I did. Anyway, did you ever wonder how LSD works? Well, they found out. UNC School of Medicine researchers have identified the amino acid that is responsible for putting you on an LSD trip. Let me just say, and there's even a footnote in our show notes tonight, that I am not encouraging drug use by any means, in any way, shape, or form. I am absolutely not encouraging drug use at all. In fact, I would suggest you not. But the fact is, the truth is, people do. And what I'm talking about tonight is honestly the people, whether or not you do, it's just interesting information, but I am not promoting drug use. Be really clear about that. Researchers at UNC School of Medicine discovered the protein responsible in LSD for its psychedelic effects. A single amino acid, part of the protein, GAC, I think is how you pronounce that, activates the mind-bending experience. The researchers hope by identifying this, it will help shape depression treatments. Again, the article's in our show notes. I encourage you to go check it out and read it. There's a lot of details in here. It's not written as a science-y type article, so you can read it even if you're not a scientist. But it is there. It is very cool. And um, it talks about how now that they have identified it, now we know how psychedelic drugs work. Finally, we can use the information, hopefully, to discover better medications for many psychiatric diseases, which is exactly why the research is going on. Not for, you know, oh, isn't this cool? Or, hey, let's all go on a trip. But because eventually the hope is to use these uh, drugs uh, in developing psychiatric medicines. So good on you. It's uh, it's an incredible story. Very, very cool story that popped up on my, uh, my timeline tonight. So, yeah, excellent. All right, we got a mosh tonight, so I mean, we're we're talking about a little bit of everything, you name it, <laughs> we're going to talk about it. This one came up, and oh man, I was so happy to see this. It's from the good folks at the World of Buzz. The link is in our show notes, of course. You can always find the links to the articles we use here on the show down below our video or in the audio podcast down below the podcast description. You might have to click expand because there's a lot of them in there and all kinds of information about my social media, how to contact me, you'll find it all in there. All right, back to the good news, and that is that a local band from Malaysia 
has written and performed two songs for an American thriller movie. How about that? And yo, I love these guys. Jamero, they have a Facebook page. I'm assuming there's also probably a YouTube channel. I don't know if they have their own .com or anything. But man, these guys are incredible. I cannot encourage you enough to check them out. They started just, as far as I know, they started uploading videos, whether it was YouTube, Facebook. I know they're on Facebook because I'm a follower of, of their page and I am a, a big fanboy for Jamero. But uh, these are the guys here in this, uh, this photograph. And that's the film called Measure of Revenge with music by Jumero. Uh, local music scene oftentimes don't get as much support, boy, that's true, or even respect, uh, compared to the uh, international uh, artists that they get in Malaysia. That doesn't mean, however, local artists and musicians are not just as talented, dedicated, and passionate about their music. Look, we have such amazing artists here in Malaysia that there is a, I, I'm going to call it the coconut leaf ceiling, I, I just made that up. But you, unless you break out of Malaysia and head over to the States, the UK, you are really not going to have a lifelong profitable career in music, sadly. Malaysia is not enough to support a career in music. We do not treat our artists well here in all manner, way, shape, and form of artists. We have some of the most incredible talent uh, again, just off the top of my head, people like Jacqueline Victor. She's a dear friend, and she is she is the Whitney Houston of Malaysia. I mean, even that's not saying enough. Jack is a just mind-blowing artist. Uh, Z Avi, who is incredible. Reshmanu. Quick story, when I first moved to Malaysia, I heard a Reshmanu song on the radio, and I thought, oh, this must be some new top 10 Billboard American song. Nope, local artist Reshmanu. I forget what the song was, but man, it was good. Um, we've got so many. The list goes on and on and on. There are so many amazing talents here, and it's just a shame that there is this coconut ceiling that they can't break through. Now, Yuna, good example of what happens when you get the hell out of here and go over to the States, and you've got talent because Yuna has had an in incredible career if i'm not mistaken she just came out with a new album all right so let's get back to uh, to these guys because they deserve wow they deserve such a big yay uh jumero uh, some of the local bands skillful with the craft they've been recognized internationally and now one malaysian band is even gracing the soundtrack of an american thriller local indie band jumero wrote and performed two songs you stand tall and don't want to let you in for the movie. Uh, Measure of Revenges, uh, starring Bella Thorey and Melissa Theo. The soundtrack. And uh, fantastic. Obviously, I can't play the song here. I don't believe it's even been released yet because the film's not out yet. But I put the link to this article in my show notes. And right under that is a link to Jamero's Facebook page. I can't encourage you enough to go check them out, listen to their tunes, be amazed, and uh, enjoy, because these guys are phenomenal. And if you are not in Malaysia, it doesn't matter. It's good, 
damn good music and you got to check it out. And if you are an artist manager, other than in Malaysia, you listen to these guys too and some of our other folks and see if you don't see a billion dollar marketing scheme and talent there. These guys don't get the respect they deserve and they are amazing. Amazing. All right, check out the link in our show notes, please. Give them a follow to Jamero. Congratulations, guys. Fantastic news. Really, really good news. All right. Are you ready to die? Sorry, coffee break time. This was the weirdest story. It's from uh, bigthink.com. Links in our show notes, of course. Did you know you can die simply by giving up the will to live? Hmm. Serious. There is new research out that says, indeed, you can die if you simply give up. You know all these little memes you see about, you know, encouraging, get through the storm, I am the storm. You know, all those kind of things. The five stages of psychogenic uh, psychogenic death, a.k.a. give up-itis. And a rather interesting picture attached. The link to this BigThink.com article is in our show notes. Give up-itis, or psychogenic death, is a very real and very terrible condition that uh, according to new research, people can actually die in as few as three days after a major trauma causes them to simply give up on life. There are five stages of give up-itis. The first of its kind study looked at the phenomenon of give up-itis, a word used for what is medically known as psychogenic death. And how is it possible? Well, the research says give up itis can be catalyzed by a trauma that seems inescapable, with death appearing as a rational and inevitable thing to do. Without interference, death can happen as little as three days after someone initially withdraws from life. What's important to note about the condition is that it's not the same as suicide. Ah, because that thought was running through my head. Psychogenic death is very real, said Dr. Leach. It isn't suicide. It is not linked to depression. But the act of simply giving up on life and dying, usually within about three days, is a very real condition linked to severe trauma. Severe trauma might trigger some people's anterior cingulate circuit to malfunction, explained Dr. Leach. Motivation is essential for coping with life, and if that fails, apathy is almost inevitable. There are the five things here. Uh, Suicide by suicidal thoughts. Aldwin, I think, yeah, that kind of sums it up. Wow. Um, die of thirst within three days. I don't know what the science is on that. I know you, there is a very limited amount of time you can go without food is, is long. 
you can go quite a while without food, without water. If I'm not, I recall that number it being about three days without water, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, there is a list of the five stages here. I'm not going to go through them all, but I encourage you to read the article if it interests you. Again, it's not written science-y. It's written for normal people, so you can check it out. It's a quick read. But it talks about the stages of uh, progressing psychological decline leading to death. It's, I mean, it's dark, but it is absolutely fascinating. you got to check this out. You can die simply by giving up. Very, very weird. All right. I, by the way, if, I don't know if you can tell, I'm doing things a little differently tonight. So you have to bear with me while I look over here a lot. If you're listening on the podcast, that made no sense whatsoever, but that's all right. Uh, well, check this out. Malaysia and the good old United States of America came together in the last uh, couple of days. Yes, Malaysian Prime Minister meets Let's Go Brandon. The Prime Minister was over in the U.S., and the idiot president of the U.S. came out for a photo op. And everybody in Malaysia is like, yes, wow, great, we got nice diplomatic ties with uh, the U.S. Look, folks, I hate to burst your bubble, but the chances are about 30 seconds after this photo was taken, Brandon doesn't even remember who the hell he just met. He went back in to eat his oatmeal and get his, well, I don't know if he can chew cookies or not, but he was probably late for his nap. While kids in America can't find formula and the price of gas is between four and five bucks a gallon, and our southern border is basically completely open. We kind of don't have a country anymore because, you know, borders, a country, they kind of go together. Anyway, trust me, Malaysia, it's not that big of a deal because this idiot doesn't even remember who we met. Or, or Malaysia? Hmm, where's that? So, there you go. Yes, that's exactly how I feel about that illegitimate president in the White House. So, there you go. Hey, this one's a cool one. I love when good news comes out of India. I know we have a lot of uh, listeners in India, to our podcast especially, so hello to you. But uh, I saw this. It's just a quick uh, graphic, but it is so cool. If you are a Tamil speaker, check this out. From uh, Sanjay Purumai. Purumal? Purumal. Uh, it's a public post, so I'm not giving away any weird family secrets here. Tamil civilization goes back as far as 4,000 200 years according to new findings at and I know I'm not going to say this right so don't laugh Maya Ladamparai Tamil Tamil Nadu I guess I didn't do too bad actually they have done research and uh, they found iron artifacts at this place dating back to 2172 BCE the new finding pushes the start of the Iron Age in uh, Tamil Nadu to more than six centuries earlier 
than what they originally believed. There's the uh, architectural site, the dig, and according to what they've found, Tamil civilization goes back as far as 4,200 years. That is amazing. Quick story, but well worth sharing with you. If you want, the link is in our show notes. It's just a, you can probably look up the info also on the, uh, on the net. All right. In our, was it our last show or was it the show before? I think it was our last show. We talked about the stupidity of um, uh, SOPs when they allow nightclubs to open in Malaysia, which is going to be tomorrow, I think. Um, well, they've actually come out with the official list, <laughs> the laughable list, I guess we can call it. Uh, this from the Malay Mail, links in our show notes. Standard operating procedures issued today for nightlife entertainment and out, outlets previously on the government's negative list includes a mandis, mandatory self-test of patrons 24 hours before entry and supervised by a certified medical doctor and the compulsory use of uh, my Sajatra trace feature. Uh, yeah, so there you go. A friend of mine pointed this out today. It says a mandatory self-test for patrons 24 hours before entry. But it doesn't say how many more days or weeks or months before entry. So in other words, if I had a self-test, a PCR test, whatever they call those stupid COVID things. Uh, if I had a test in, say, January and it was negative and I haven't had one since then, well, that's technically 24 hours before I've gone into the club. Does that matter? Does that qualify? I didn't read the whole entire exact memo from these dummies, but I'm guessing probably there's some way that you can't get around it like that. But it's a great point. If it has to be 24 hours before, could it also be 342 hours before? Or does it have to be exactly, if you're going to go into the club at 10 o'clock at night, does it have to be 10 o'clock the night before? I'm just being difficult because I think all these things are stupid the same way I think masks are stupid. They don't work. There is no scientific evidence, no substantive scientific studies that have showed masks do anything, but very limited if you are infected and that ain't much. And it doesn't, never mind. I've gone through that whole crap before. You don't want to listen to me talk about it again. Aldwin, looking forward to the day we can go outside without our masks on. That day is here, pal. I haven't worn a mask outside since I don't know how long. You don't have to anymore in outdoor, uncrowded areas, which is pretty much where I go when I'm outdoors. I keep my mask with me around my arm, you know, and I, I know how stupid and foolish and how ineffective it is in doing anything to prevent me from catching the virus. But, uh, you know, I play the game. Why not? They're completely useless. Science has shown that. People here are still married to them. I still see idiots driving alone in the car wearing a mask. You are a moron. But anyway, we play the game with them and just let them have their little fun. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, according to the new rules, uh, anywhere outside in non-crowded areas, you do not need to wear 
a mask. So stop doing that, Aldwin. If you want. If you want to wear a mask, you do you. Knock yourself out. I'll do me. You do you. All right. Uh, one more I got to do, and then we're going to go to our uh, part of our book here for uh, Sherlock Holmes. And you're going to love this one. I've talked about this wonderful woman before. And uh, you ready? <laughs> you know right away who that is, don't you? If you're watching on the video, the unmistakable Annabelle doll. There is an article here from allthatsinteresting.com that I shared in our show notes. Please check it out. And uh, I'm not a big fan of this kind of horror stuff. This is real life. But of course, there's also the horror films based on and around Annabelle the doll. (coughs) Excuse me. I never got the chance to actually see Annabelle. Nor do I think if I had the chance, I would necessarily want to. I'm not going to go into the whole story because most people already know the whole story. What I did want to share with you is uh, my connection to, sort of, to Annabelle. And that is with these two guys, uh, this guy and this gal. And uh, that is Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were actually featured. Uh, they've done tons of TV shows, films. Uh, they were charactered in uh, a lot of the films where they were involved in some of the ghost hunting. And uh, back when I used to do a uh, radio talk show back in the 80s, uh, yeah, that long ago, I'm that old. Um, Ed and Lorraine lived in a, a town just a few towns away from where our studios were. And we got a connection with Ed and Lorraine. We invited them on the show. And man, it took off like wildfire. People love this topic. But um, we had them back. We became fast friends. I went on a ghost hunt with the Ed and Lorraine once. Time of my life. What an amazing experience. They were, they have both passed now, but they were absolutely the most charming, caring people. Uh, some of the most I've ever met. They're just amazing folks. They were, they were incredible people. It was such a pleasure to know these, uh, these two guys, Ed and Lorraine Warren. But this is an article, uh, and they have the original Annabelle doll in a glass case, and uh, with a warning says, positively do not open. But um, yeah, don't invite a ghost into the podcast. I'll get nightmares. No, uh, we don't want to do that. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea. I got enough technical problems without having a ghost flying around. But anyway, do check out the link. It's in our show notes, and it's a cool article. And uh, just know that your host here, me, has a very personal connection to to, um, Ed and Lorraine Warren. All right, man, I got so much stuff tonight that I saved up. It's all in the show notes. Uh, You know what? I'm going to get to it, and then we'll take a little extra time for our book tonight. They're just very quick ones. But believe it or not, have you heard of a Thunderbird? Well, they say it might exist today. But the idea that it did exist in relatively recent history is a bit scary. Take a look at this. The legendary ancient Thunderbird was absolutely real. There it is. And these are full-grown men. 
And they say it may have, it may still exist. Every year, 15,000 and 18,000 new animal species are found and classified using cutting-edge DNA testing worldwide. As one might expect, extinct and even undiscovered creatures are still discovered. And so what happens when myths come true? There's another picture. Look at that. Look at the size of that thing. Unbelievable. So this thing existed, and there is a belief among the scientific community that it may still exist. Uh, no thank you? <laughs> Seriously. All right, and one more. I promise this is it, and then we'll move on. Again, these last two are visuals, so if you're listening on our podcast, I'm sorry. There is a link you can look at what we're talking about in our show notes. Just check it out in the description. Uh, it does look like a pterodactyl. You're exactly right, Aldwin. I thought the same thing. It's it's very pterodactyl. Um, and that photo had to be from what? The late 1800s, early 1900s? Probably late 1800s. Yeah, not that long ago. Someone took Orion's belt in the sky, a photograph of it, and superimposed it over top of the Giza pyramids. If you haven't seen this before, take a look at this. Huh? I don't have a lot of comments about it, except wow. But that is a picture of Orion's belt, the three stars in the bottom of the dipper. I think it's a little dipper. Orion's belt. And they are superimposed over top of the pyramids at Giza. And if you are not able to see the, the visual here, all three of the stars line up because they're not exactly equidistant or perfectly in a line, but all three of them line up and hit exactly the tops of the pyramids at Giza. And yes, Aldwin, you're right. The ancient Egyptians indeed knew their astrology. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you. Weird stuff tonight. We got a, we got a lot of stuff jammed in there, huh? All right, let's, uh, let's move over to our book because we got to get its chapters a little long. We're breaking it up into sections, but uh, it is indeed the adventures of Sherlock Holmes from Sir. Hello. Where's my notes? Sorry. <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, and uh, first published in 1892. So let's settle in, settle back. Let me get a quick sip of Miko mug coffee. You want a Miko mug? Go to the top link in our show notes. You'll find it. Mm. And continue on with Sherlock Holmes. At precisely three o'clock, I was at Baker Street, but Holmes hadn't yet returned. Well, the landlord lady informed me that he'd left the house shortly after eight o'clock in the morning. I sat down beside the fire, however, with the intention of awaiting him, however long he might be. I was already deeply interested in this inquiry, for, though it was surrounded by none of the grim and strange features which were associated with the two crimes which I have already recorded, still, the nature of the case and the exalted station of his client gave it a character of its own. Indeed, apart from the nature of the investigation which my friend had on hand, there was something in his masterly grasp of a situation and his keen, incisive reasoning, 
which made it a pleasure to me to study his system of work and to follow the quick, subtle methods by which he disentangled the most inextricable mysteries. So accustomed was I to his invariable success that the very possibility of his failing had ceased to enter my head. It was close upon four before the door opened and a drunken-looking groom, ill-kempt and side-whiskered, with an inflamed face and disreputable clothes, walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers in the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed he. With a nod, he vanished into the bedroom. Whence he emerged in five minutes, tweed-suited and respectable, as of old. Putting his hands into his pockets, he stretched out his legs in front of the fire and laughed heartily for some minutes. "'Well, really!' he cried, and then he choked and laughed again, until he was obliged to lie back limp and helpless in the chair. "'What is it? Oh, it's quite too funny. I am sure you could never guess how I employed my morning, or what I ended by doing. I can't imagine.' I suppose that you've been watching the habits and perhaps the house of Miss Irene Adler? Oh, quite so, but the sequel was rather unusual. I will tell you, however, I left the house a little after eight o'clock this morning, and the character of a groom out of work. There was a wonderful symphony in Freemasonry among horsey men, but be one of them, and you'll know all there is to know. I soon found Bryony Lodge, and it's a Bijou villa with a garden at the back, but built out in front, right up to the road, two stories. Chub locked to the door, large sitting room on the right side, well furnished, long windows almost to the floor, and those preposterous English window fasteners which a child could open. Behind them was nothing remarkable, save that passage window could be reached from the top of the coach house. I walked round it, examined it closely from every point of view, but without noting anything else of any interest. I then lounged down the street and found, as I expected, that there was a mews in a lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses, and I received in exchange twopence glass of half and half, two fills of shag tobacco, and as much information as I desired about Miss Adler, to say nothing about a half a dozen other people in the neighborhood in whom I was not in the least interested, but whose biographies I was compelled to listen to. And what of Irene Adler? I asked. Oh, she's turned all the men's head down in that part. She's the daintiest thing under a bonnet in this planet. So say the serpentine muse to a man. She lives quietly, sings at concerts, drives out at five every day, returns at seven sharp for dinner, seldom goes out at other times except when she sings, has only one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He's dark, handsome, dashing, never calls less than once a day, and often twice. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton of the Inner Temple. See the advantages of a cabman as a confidant? They had driven him home a dozen times from Serpentine Mews and knew all about him. When I had listened to all that they had to tell, I began to walk up and down near Bryony Lodge once more, 
and to think over my plan of campaign. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter, for he was a lawyer. That sounded ominous. What was the relation between them, and what was the object of his repeated visits? Was she his client, his friend, or his mistress? If the former, she had probably transferred the photograph to his keeping. If the latter, it was less likely. On the issue of his question depended whether I should continue my work at Bryony Lodge or turn my attention to the gentleman's chambers in the temple. It was a delicate point, and it widened the field of my inquiry. I fear I bore you with these details, but I have to let you see my little difficulties, if, if you're to understand the situation. Oh, I'm following closely, I answered. I was still balancing the matter in my mind when a handsome cab drove up to Briony Lodge, and a gentleman sprang out. He was a remarkably handsome man dark, aquiline, mustached, evidently the man of whom I'd heard. He appeared to be in a great hurry, shouted to the cabman to wait, and brushed past the maid who opened the door with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. He was in the house about a half hour, and I could catch glimpses of him in the window of the sitting room, pacing up and down, talking excitedly, waving his arms, or of her I could see nothing. Presently, he emerged, looking even more flurried than before. As he stepped up to the cab, he pulled a gold watch from his pocket and looked at it earnestly. "'Drive like the devil!' he shouted. First to Gross and Hankey's in Regent Street, then to the Church of St. Monica in the Edgewood Road. Half a guinea if you do it in twenty minutes.' Away they went, and I was just wondering whether I should not do well to follow them when— up the lane came a neat little Landau, the coachman with his coat only half-buttoned, and his tie under his ear, while all the tags of his harness were sticking out of the buckles. It hadn't pulled up before she shot out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but she was a lovely woman, with a face that a man might die for. The Church of St. Monica, John, she cried and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. This was quite too good to lose, Watson. I was just balancing whether I should run for it, or whether I should just perch behind her landau, and a cab came through the street. The driver looked twice at such a shabby face, but I jumped in before he could object. The Church of St. Monica, said I, and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. It was twenty-five minutes to twelve, and of course... It was clear enough what was in the wind. My cabby drove fast. I don't think I ever drove faster, but the others were before us. The cab, the Landau, with their steaming horses, were in front of the door when I arrived. I paid the man, hurried into the church. There was not a soul there, save the two whom I had followed, and a surpliced clergyman, who seemed to be expostulating with them. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. I lounged up the side aisle like any other idler who'd just dropped by the church. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three at the altar faced round to me, and Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me. Thank God, he cried. You'll do. Come, come. What then? I asked. Come, come, man. Only three minutes or it won't be legal. 
I was half dragged up the altar, and before I knew where I was, I found myself mumbling responses which were whispered in my ear and vouching for things of which I knew nothing, generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler, spinster, to Godfried Norton, bachelor. And it was all done in an instant. And there was the gentleman thanking me on one side and the lady on the other, while the clergyman beamed me in front. It was the most preposterous position in which I have ever found myself in my life. And it was the thought of it started me laughing just now. Seems there'd been some informality about their license, and the clergyman absolutely refused to marry him without a witness of some sort. That my lucky appearance saved the bridegroom from having to sally out into the streets in search of a best man. The bride gave me a sovereign, and I meant to wear it on my watch chain in memory of the occasion. This is a very unexpected turn of affairs, said I. And what then? Well, I found my plans very seriously menaced. It looked as if the pair might take an immediate departure, so it necessitated very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated. He drove back to the temple and she to her own house. I shall drive out to the park at five as usual, she said. As she left him, I heard no more. They drove away in different directions, and I went off to make my own arrangements. Which are? Some cold beef and a glass of beer, he answered, ringing the bell. I've been too busy to think of food, and I'm likely to be busier still this evening. By the way, doctor, I shall want your cooperation. Oh, I shall be delighted. Uh, you don't mind breaking the law? Huh, not in the least. Nor running a chance of arrest? Not in a good cause. Ah, the cause is excellent. Then I am your man. I was sure I might rely on you. But what is it you wish? When Mrs. Turner has brought in the tray, I'll make it clear to you now, he said, as he turned hungrily on the simple fare that our landlady had provided. I must discuss it while I eat, for I've not much time. It's nearly five now. In two hours, we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madam, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Bryony Lodge to meet her. And then what? Ah, you leave that to me. I've already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point on which I must insist. You must not interfere, come what may. You understand? I am to be neutral. To do nothing whatever. There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in it. It will end up in my being conveyed into the house. Four or five minutes afterward, in the sitting room, window will be open. You are to station yourself as close to that open window. Yes, you are to watch for me, for I will be invisible to you. Yes. And when I raise my hand, so you will throw into the room what I give you to throw, and will at the same time raise the cry of fire. You quite follow me? Entirely. It is nothing very formidable, he said, taking a long cigar-shaped roll from his pocket. It's an ordinary plumber's smoke rocket filled with a cap at either end to make it self-lighting. Your task is confined to that. 
When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope I've made myself clear. I am to remain neutral, to get near the window, to watch you, and at the signal to throw in the object and raise the cry of fire and wait you at the corner of the street. Precisely. Then you may entirely rely on me. Ah, excellent, I think. Perhaps it is almost time that I prepare for the new role I have to play. And that's where we're going to leave it as they get ready to see what Ms. Adler is up to (laughs) in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. How about that? All right, folks, that's going to do it for another show. Happy Saturday. Enjoy the rest or the start of your weekend, wherever you may be on the planet. I will see you again on Monday night at 10 p.m. Malaysian time, where we'll have another complete collection of weird crap that I find on the Internet I want to share with you and in some cases make comments. Uh, Mr. Sheldon, I've watched Dr. Oh, please don't call me Mr. Sheldon. Mr. Sheldon was my father's name. I'm just Jay. But anyway, uh, Alden says, I've watched Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness twice, and it was a little disappointing. Really? I'm sorry about that. As you know, we talked about it before. I'm, I'm not a big Marvel Universe fan and all that stuff. But anyway... Uh, I have heard that from more than one person in my Facebook feed uh, who've made comments. Some are filmmakers, some are film directors, some are film critics, and other people are just ordinary, everyday folks. But more than one person has said uh, there's a lot of people that really loved it, who enjoyed it thoroughly, and uh, a number of people who've said they were a bit disappointed in uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I will likely see it whenever it winds up somewhere else besides the cinema. Because like I told you, I'm not a big cinema goer because the cinemas suck these days. It's just a shoebox with a footstool in it. Anyway, uh, yeah, we'll check it out. I'll let you know what I think as a non-Marvel fan. But uh, yeah, we'll go from there. All right, I'll see you again on uh, on Monday night. Thanks for joining. Thanks for popping by. And thanks for listening on our podcast. Be sure you sign up for our podcast and follow and subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, until then, I'm the guy who does not very often wear pants, hardly at all. I'm Jay Sheldon. Good night. <laughs>